you reinventors. This is Leslie James Seymour, and I'm the founder of this podcast and of CoveyClub.com. And if you are serious about your reinvention, and I know you are because you're here, mosey on over to CoveyClub.com and pick up all the fabulous articles and essays that we have to inspire you and keep you going. We have how-tos, we have essays from people who have done it, and of course, subscribe to this podcast and you will get to hear more of all these fabulous stories of women doing great things and reinventing themselves and reinventing their world. So today I have someone for you who's just going to blow your socks off. And this is Dr. Joan Fallon. And she is on the verge of, because of a reinvention that she did, of changing the world of autism. And it's going to be huge. And I'm just going to give you a little bit of her background, and then she's going to tell you the story. I don't want to spoil it, but it's extraordinary. It's amazing. And you need to pass this podcast along to anybody you know who needs to know anything about autism and what's happening. So let me just give you a little bit of her background. Dr. Fallon began her research on autism and related disorders over 20 years ago and founded CureMark, which is the place you'll go find out more as a platform to develop product candidates to address her findings. Dr. Fallon has both clinical expertise and academic experience, the former from running a private practice specializing in pediatric development and the later as an assistant professor of natural sciences and mathematics at Yeshiva University. So she has all these other, it's a whole paragraph of um, wonderful, background that you can read when you go to Caremark. And, um, but I, I want to, I don't want to keep you from the story that she's going to tell you about her breakthrough coming in autism. And here she is. So hello, Joan. It's wonderful to have you on the podcast. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. So tell me a little bit about your personal reinvention story. I always like to start there because I think people who reinvent things around them often have their own personal reinvention story. So I think that, you know, when I think about reinvention, I think about um, finding talents, hidden parts of you that mm -hmm. are that are there that need to come out and actually be front and center. Yep. And so um, I, for me, it was about being in a practice, a pediatric practice for 25 years and making a discovery around children with autism and uh, knowing that I had discovered something which I thought could be very helpful uh, for the uh, autism community and those who, who have the condition. And had to find a way to bring out sort of the scientist in me, which of course I I, I was, but not in a practicing way. And uh, I went back to school, uh, learned how to do a clinical trial, left practice and started a company. Um, so you, you and, was, and was that related to, what did it come right out of that, that research? It came right out of that research. And it was really actually around frustration with, with my colleagues trying all different kinds of things to help these children because parents were pretty desperate, uh, especially for these young children and doing things that I thought in some cases were not really all that responsible. Um, 
and being frustrated around it and also seeing that what I thought was a major um, factor in uh, a majority of their lives was not being addressed, which is what they ate. So while- Oh, oh my goodness. Okay. So while the symptoms of autism are a spectrum and you have to have uh, a constellation of them to be called autism, every child with autism looks different. And so, but what I found was was more similar child to child was what they ate, which I thought was really odd. And parents described it as a white diet and a tan diet, but actually it was a diet that was very high in carbohydrates and very low in protein. And I kept thinking that can't be by chance. Um, and that's when sort of the, the scientist part of me came out and I did testing on these children and found that all of the first nine children I looked at all had missing or very low levels of a specific enzyme that actually digests protein. Oh, interesting. And that's how that journey started. So talk a little bit about, is that where you found, why you founded Puremark? Mm-hmm. So the, um, uh, the finding was pretty robust. We ultimately did 1,500 children looking at children with and without autism to see if this was a, uh, a true and meaningful finding. And it uh, turns out it was. And I also knew that if I didn't go to find out if it could help the children, then it would just sit there, you know, sort of in my records and not be something that uh, potentially could help them. So I was back and forth for a long time about whether I leave practice, um, do I form a company? I never really run it. I've never run a company. I've run a private practice, but not a company. And so I found the right people to surround myself with, and I left practice and uh, developed a replacement enzyme for the children. And tell me how that works and how do, how do people access it? Well, right now it's, it's gone through uh, a significant number of FDA clinical trials and we'll be submitting our application for approval this year. So we're hoping that in the next year or so, it will be available uh, to, to young children with autism. Incredible. I mean, it seems like that's in the wave of um, all the functional doctors finding yes. that food is the what? It's the intelligence you feed your body. It's not just calories. No, and and you know, for a long time, the kind of gut brain access that is in the literature that's spoken about a lot in the past was just ignored uh, for a very long time. And um, uh, and until the microbiome movement sort of came around uh, in this wave of science, did the gut and the brain kind of get connected. But I think that what we have found is fundamental, not just to uh, the gut and the brain, but also to the environment which promotes uh, problems in the gut, uh, such as the, the microbiome being uh, not, not right. So I think that we have come to a very cutting edge type of science, and um, which is very simple and yet it's elegant. And mm. we're excited by it. Um, we have found other connections to other uh, neurodevelopmental and, and neurodegenerative diseases uh, where this also may play a role. So we have a large patent portfolio. I have over 400 patents globally. Uh, 
Holy moly. On this technology. And, uh, and so we're excited to go into the future. And so the, the enzyme would help them digest the protein, which then would. It frees up the amino the right, acids. Yes. Which would do the things that need to be done in the body. And right now it's not getting it. Is that the simple way of putting it? So there are certain amino acids that you can only get by eating them in protein. They're called uh -huh. essential amino acids. Okay. And you 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 can't really take them. The body doesn't absorb them. So when you go and you get amino acid supplements, the body does not absorb them very very much. So the best way to get the amino acids into the body is to eat a protein and then digest it and break off the amino acids from the protein we eat. That's the normal way that that's done. And so what we've done is developed a enzyme um, which is a, you know, a prescription enzyme that will actually, uh, do that, uh, and open up, uh, the channels for these enzymes to be ultimately absorbed by the body and, and utilized in the brain and elsewhere. Will it have a retroactive effect? Do you think, do you know? I don't yet? know. I don't know. Um, I, I, we haven't done those tests. Um, we've done it on, you know, young children, uh, but we've had children who've been on the the uh, enzyme replacement now for 10 years, some of them, wow. to take okay. it, which is very unusual in a clinical trial. Yeah. They usually drop out or, you know, but, um, and they have sustained effects. Wow. So it's disease modifying, which we're very proud of. And um, it's not a cure, it's a treatment. So it depends on where you are on the spectrum. Some children are very severe. It brings right. them to less severe. Some kids are moderately severe. It brings them to, you know, to just slightly, you know, not severe. So we are, um, and, and we're hoping, you know, to have that approved and getting it to the children. But we're also hoping that it opens up other doors so that uh, people have been reluctant to look at treatments for autism because most of them have failed up until now. Uh -huh. And so we believe that it will then re reinvigorate the space which I think is important for the kids because not everyone's autism is exactly the same. So there right. needs to be other treatments. Right. Um, and people will look at children as being uh, important to invest in. We, we spend much more money in research on loss of function than never gaining function. Yes. Yes. And that to me is that. tragic in some ways. Right. So how will that help? Will that help um, the Asperger's area as well or no? So we we did our trials on children with autism. Okay. And so you had to have autism. The Asperger's uh, diagnosis is no longer part of the DSM-5. Oh. So some of those children are in the autism diagnosis and some of them are not. So um, but they had to be in, in, as an autism diagnosis. So I'm not sure. Okay. Interesting. Do you think that we have been overlooking the whole impact on diet and illness? Is that a, so, I mean, I feel like that's the whole big movement right now. Yeah. You know, I think I've always been of the opinion that diets are individual. You know, I remember Peter Diodamo uh, way back when, who I knew uh, wrote a book called Eat Right for Your Blood Type. Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. And that was a way of looking at, you know, why some people need to eat protein, others do not. Right. Um, but I just think that it's individualized, you know, and one day we'll understand what's best for.
for ourselves. We don't really quite know that now. Um, but I do think that it's been overlooked. I think it's an important part of of uh, of our lives, and uh, to just overlook it, I think is is uh, is not the best way to to solve problems. I know that there are uh, things like irritable bowel syndrome and, and other conditions, um, uh, Crohn's, which is not irritable bowel, but it's a, a disease is looked at as a genetic and uh, inflammatory and, and another condition. And we don't look at food as being aggravating for that. That's the mainstream view. But I do think that there is uh, another way to look at this. And, you know, we probably will be, uh, we're, we understand we'd be the first gut brain drug approved. Wow. Wow. So um, it's it's breaking the mold no matter uh, where we've gone. And so I've had to reinvent myself or reinvent the way things are done in multiple areas. And I love the fact that you had a, you literally had to reinvent yourself to get it done. You were seeing that people around you were leaving this on the table, which you thought was very right. important. Right. Right. And that often it, happens. Yeah. And I, it was all by accident, right? I didn't know, but my mind was very curious as to why, uh, you know, the children ate that way and why people were willing to do things that had no science behind them to try to help the children. And mm. I, that that was frustrating for me. And so being able to find something, first of all, and being able to take it into a company, you know, learning how to be a businesswoman with its own reinvention. Yes. Um, and uh, so it's been it's been a, uh, a journey for me. So talk about your book, Goodbye Status Quo, and why you wrote it. So the the book is a compilation of of notes and things that I had kept throughout this journey. Uh, uh, you know, challenges that I met, uh, things that I encountered, thoughts that I had. And when the pandemic hit, I realized that so much of what I had been through was germane to what people were going through during the pandemic. For example, change. Change became a huge part of my life. I changed what I did every day. I changed how I approached what I was doing. Um, and people were are fearful of change. Yes. Oh my goodness. Yes. Covey Club is all about change. And I, and I see that all the time. Right. And, you know, my brother was an entrepreneur very young. I'm an entrepreneur very not so young. And um, someone asked me one day, why did, did he think, you know, my parents weren't entrepreneurs. So why do you think that you and your brother became entrepreneurs and both in science, but in a different, different areas? And I said, well, you know, my, my parents were both big lines underwriters. My father worked for Lloyd's of London. Wow. He was a big reinsurance specialist and risk was something you managed. It wasn't something you feared. Wow. And I think that's a really good message for people because during the pandemic, you know, everything was risky. But you had to true. look at it as part of change and understand it and then, you know, just go for it. And so that's why I thought it was timely to get it out now um, because of the fact that we we had people needed to understand that change was OK and that uh, risk is OK and you just have to manage it. What was the scariest thing for you during the pandemic? What did you personally find? So I, I think, well, I think what's interesting for me uh, in keeping with this is that 
I was, um, well, I we have a, a partner who has a CEO who's Chinese. So he was oh. in China in December and January of 2020, oh, boy. 19 and 20. And he was describing, you know, sort of every week to me what was going on there. So I was aware of the Wuhan piece. I was aware of 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 the 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 Wuhan geography, which he described to me as the most inland port in uh, China, and I, I finally said to him, you know, you need to get out of there because mm. this thing is becoming bigger and bigger. And so he left and came home, and then I went to Qatar oh. uh, at the behest of the government to look at the autism facilities there, and to see what they were doing, and uh, and so. While I was there, you know, COVID was there and uh, the Qatari government went out and took all of the people, their people who were overseas and brought them back or in the process of bringing them back and quarantining them so that they were home and not away. And so when I came home, I said to my, my team, okay, two things. One is I want you to pay everyone ahead of time for two months and I want you to send medication out to the children on our trial for six months. And they're like, what are you talking about? And I said, look, this is coming here. Wow. And we are going to have to deal with it. And I don't know what's going to shut down. Whole companies may shut down because of this. And I don't want my my kids on the trial all of a sudden cold turkey oh, not yeah. getting their drug. And, and then the, everything had to go remote which we were set up for, thank goodness, uh, in the way that we had organized our trials, which were in-person, but could go remote. So we did all of that right away. And so I was sort of expecting the worst and, you know, we sort of got that. In, in <laughs> we definitely got it. Uh, were, the we, kids, we were, were the kids you were working with for your trial, were they in China or were they around the world? No, they were here. They're all in the U.S. In the U.S. Okay. They're all U.S., yeah. Uh, and so... You know, we called all of our sites and we told them that this is what we were planning to do. We notified FDA. Uh, FDA soon after that came out with their own version of what people should do around this, which was simply what we had done, which was really great. Um, and uh, so we were able not to skip a beat uh, during that time. But everything, as we geared up for, for full-time manufacturing and those kinds of things, everything took longer. Yeah, of course. What, what would take six weeks took 10 weeks, of course. you know, so it was, it was hard to manage in terms of what, what else we had to do uh, in the company. Wow. Incredible. So what do you think stands in the way of most people being okay with change and being comfortable with it? Do you, I mean, is it just a natural human brain not wanting when it's comfortable to move? Yeah, it, I think it's you know. fear. I think that there are, especially some people are very fear driven. That's sort of where their energy comes from. Mm. And in, in some ways that's okay. But when uh, it's paralyzing, then it becomes obstructive. So I think that fear is a, is a very large driver of that. And, um, you know, I believe that the change that we need to make in life, the things that come up, uh, come up out of that status quo, 
Uh, I describe it in my book as like the San Andreas fault, that there are fault lines in the status quo through which energy comes up and change comes. I think mm -hmm. those openings got wider uh, during the pandemic. And so there were more areas that could change. I mean, who thought that the way we eat dinner out or the way we go to school would change the way it right. had. The way we go to work. Yeah, I mean, the medical world had been re so resistant of telemedicine, so resistant. Yes, yes. And then it became the norm. So I think that uh, those kinds of openings are really important. I think it uncovered some of the, uh, you know, the health equity uh, issues we have in this country. Yes. And uh, how we don't always value our service people the way we should because they were on the front lines. Yes. What up a lot of things I think that are important for us to look at as a society. So what if somebody who's listening to this is in a similar situation to where you were? And I hear it a lot. I hear it in beauty companies. I hear it in all kinds of different companies where the research is being done and there's a whole segment that they're just ignoring, the big companies ignoring. Right. Or they're just putting it aside. How do you how do you have the guts to say, okay, I I yeah, I believe you, there's all this this, you know, market here, but no one's doing anything with it. How do you know when it's time to stand up and walk away? Do you have to put away a certain amount of money? Does it just become a point in your life where you just feel like it's too important to ignore? What would well, you I think suggest for me, to them? Well, I think for me it was too important to ignore. I think that if I, I knew that if I didn't do this and, and part, I have to say, I have to just digress for a moment. My brother who was an inventor early said to me literally in the early stages of this kind of discovery that I made that I needed to patent the idea that if I didn't patent the idea, then it wouldn't have a commercial value and no one would even look at it. And it was a very foreign concept to me because mm -hmm. what do you mean patent that? This is just something that can help people. But um, he was he was correct. And and so, you know, we did that. And I had, um, you know, proof. I had all these medical tests that were done by third party laboratories that showed me that this deficiency was real. So I had that. And I also had tremendous support from the people around me. And I think that's also really important is that when you have that support, it's not quite as scary as it would be if you didn't have the support. And is that like your brother or you mean your colleagues or? I think it mean? was just everybody. I mean, I think even my, you know, I, I served, you know, families for, for 25 years and they were like, we're going to miss you, but go for it. Right. So I think that, that knowing that this could really help a lot of people and that if it worked and, and that I was going to make sure that I gave everyone the best darn clinical trial that one could do, because I went back to school to learn how to do that, um, and just and just sort of going for it. But that was my motivation: was what if I didn't do this, and it really was meaningful? Mm. And generations of children could potentially just go on without any treatment. Oh. And that was sort of what I was faced with, and. But then there's all those personal decisions. Like I had spent my retirement money doing patents before I started a company. And there was wow. all kinds of, of considerations to, to think about. 
But having the right support and uh, having a conviction of what you found or what you want to do and being able to be flexible. So you can have a conviction about something, but things around you often change. So being able to, I call it bend, but not break, being able to pivot if you need to slightly or to, to change course midstream because you hit a roadblock that you need to go around. You have to have both of those qualities, I think, to, to go forward, knowing that I'm going full speed ahead, but if it doesn't look like what I envisioned, but it looks slightly different, that's okay too. Right. Um, you know, I didn't think it would be this long that I'd be doing this. Uh, I didn't didn't know if it would be this successful. Uh, I, I just didn't know. It was a lot of unknowns. How was I going to raise the money to do this? I had no clue. But I so, did. It was important to do. So when will you be on the market? Do you have a sense? Uh, maybe next year. That That's what we're hoping for. Okay. So people who are listening who want to know more, where can they go and where can they find you and where can they find they be updated go, on what you're up to? They can go on our website, which is www.curemark.com. I am uh, active on Twitter, um, um, which is at Curemark CEO. And uh, we try to put out as much uh, information as possible. You know, we're, we're precluded from some of that because we're still in an FDA process uh, and we're not public. Uh, so, but um, we're happy to answer questions if people have them. And what does Curemark mean? Why did you call it Curemark? Because originally we had, a, the, the, the finding was a biomarker. And that's how we looked at it, that this is something can show that uh, there was this finding in these children. And that's kind of what the genesis of that was. Um, and for lay people, at, is that a genetic marker? Is that what that is? Well, so, you know, today it would have been genetic marker. For us, it was the, was the low level of this enzyme. And the fact that it was so oh, clear. that they uh, just that had a, a low level. Right. Okay. Yeah. That's okay enough to, yeah. to be a mark. Okay. So it's not a gen, you're not looking at genetics. No, no, genetics has not been uh, a favorable place to look for autism. They've been looking now for quite some time and have not found a gene uh, or even a combination of genes that actually uh, causes autism. Uh, it's probably epigenetic, uh, which means that there's a predisposition of a genetic predisposition and something in the external world triggers that that change. Mm -hmm. Fascinating. Any last words you have for people who are listening and who are thinking, A, they need help with autism, or B, they are in a similar situation as you are where they're trying to get something done and it can't be done and they're afraid of moving out on their own? So I think in terms of autism, I think the, the two national organizations have done a great job in terms of, of trying to help parents when a child is first diagnosed. And now, of course, many of the children are older and there's housing um, considerations and things like that. So the Autism Society and then Autism Speaks. Um, in terms of wanting to do something bold and, 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 and great, um, I think that uh, not being afraid uh, understanding who you are and what you're about and what you can do 
uh, and then pushing beyond your own limitations to make it happen. Um, and uh, and not being afraid. That's really the big, yeah. that's really the big thing. I hear you. <laughs> it's scary out there. Every day is scary, but you have to push beyond that and just say, what the heck, let's see what happens. That's right. That's fantastic. Exactly right. Thank you so much, Dr. Fallon. I really appreciate your time. And I can't wait to see when this all goes public. You're going to help so many people and so many people who are listening to this are going to be thrilled that you did that. So we really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope this conversation was helpful for you. I hope you share it with anybody who needs to know more about autism and with anybody who is in a situation where they realize they need to do more and in a different way in an area that they care about, where they need to maybe shake things up, break things, move out, and are finding that the status quo is not doing what it should be doing. And I hope that you will use Dr. Joan Fallon as your hero for doing that. And you will follow along in her footsteps and make your own reinvention as amazing as hers is. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars. And also, if you want more information about reinvention, please mosey on over to cubbyclub.com. See all the great things we do. We have challenges, we have pods, we have masterminds, we have coaching. You name it, we do it. We're hands on and we know how to get you from stuck to sensational. And it doesn't take that long. And if you're drifting or you're unsure or you're worried or scared or you're going through a transition, believe me, we've heard it all. We've all been there and we're all moving through it and the big surprise is moving through it together is a lot easier and a lot better than doing it alone so i hope i see you over at coveyclub.com and if not i will see you again on this podcast next time take care